Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and we are working chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. This is chapter three of the book of Romans that we are diving into this week. This week, we're going to handle a lot of Paul's uh, theology surrounding certain objections that he sees the people having in response to the first two chapters that he's laid out for people in Rome. He's focused specifically on how Jewish objections might uh, be labeled against both him and God and is out to both defend his ideology as well as defend God. Um, This is going to be a great chapter as we kind of dive into some more of how he sees God's own faithfulness, how the Israelites have not been faithful, and what that all means for the story of Israel and the story of the Gentiles. So come along. Opening into a chapter that has a lot of terminology that gets used quite a bit in, um, I guess I'll say, systematic theology circles. And so it might be helpful before we kind of dive into this chapter to really kind of define some terms here and kind of even to lay out kind of a spectrum of different um beliefs and understandings of different terms. Because unfortunately, when we get to the book of Romans, a lot of the disagreements people will have, um, a lot of the parting of ways that a person will have in an interpretation of the book of Romans, oftentimes comes down to a difference in terminology, which is just a fancy way of saying a difference in vocabulary, a difference in understanding two different terms. And uh, one person may see a term or a word in a different way than another person will see a word in a in whatever way they see it. Um, And unfortunately, this is where, um, with the fact that this is a book that was written 2,000 years ago, um, also in a language that we are, uh, at least in the United States of America, very unfamiliar with, um, it oftentimes can result in just kind of a he said, she said kind of argument, because um, even when one goes to uh, like a Greek dictionary, for instance, you will find that different dictionaries have different understandings, and um, oftentimes even dictionaries will change in their understanding of a word over time, and so a lot of times you can find an older dictionary that will have in favor a different view than maybe a newer dictionary will have, and then of course there's the philosophical debate of like, is newer dictionaries better than older dictionaries, and you know, it can just become a mess of uh, like spiraling into different arguments that aren't even about the very topic that you originally were trying to talk about. So what I want to do here is really just kind of lay out a few terms that um, may I may have mentioned briefly in the first two chapters and explained in the first two chapters, but really kind of give you um, a sense for these words and terms that uh, uh, 
is something that you can kind of call back to throughout the rest of the book. And hopefully um, I will present it well and in a way that um, shows multiple views even so that you can kind of um, keep that in the back of your mind as sort of a potential, um, I guess I would say a crossroads of sort. And uh, when, when a term comes up, especially in this chapter where there's a lot of different terms um, that Paul will use um, that often get thrown about in debates, uh, the you at least have kind of a foreknowledge of those terms and you have a foreknowledge of the different kind of opinions involving those terms. Um, the whole point of this is education at the end of the day. And so uh, educating people into um, multiple different uh, opinions on a word um, is very important to understanding uh, the context of an entire passage. So um, it's something that I really care about. And so uh, let's go ahead and dive straight into that. Like I said, I'm hoping this doesn't gonna, isn't going to take too long. We're definitely going to get into the passage itself, but it is helpful just kind of before we even kind of touch the passage just to have that the terms kind of set. So the first word I want to talk about is a word that in a lot of circles you will hear is the word righteousness. It's the word um, that in Hebrew, at least, um, is the word um, sadek. Um, in Greek, however, um, that word is uh, dikaios. Um, and those two words um, probably <laughs> have become more the source of debate in all of theology than I don't think any other word, honestly mainly because uh, there is a lot of personal investment in those words. Um, there's a lot of different opinions on those words, um, and I will kind of explain why here. Um, the old way of understanding righteousness was from a very moral perspective, and what I mean by moral is uh, righteous really just meant being a good person. Um, that uh, righteousness, uh, if you were to describe um, someone that was a good person, you would describe a, uh, you would describe them as righteous. Um, this is famously what Martin Luther interpreted righteousness to mean. Um, this is famously what um, you will find a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, evangelical Protestants today um, interpreting righteousness to mean is a um, term that defines good from bad and the wicked are opposed to the righteous and the righteous are good and the evil or wicked are bad. Um, and it's a very simple explanation for that word. If you're righteous, you are good. Um, up and against that is a more, um, uh, more social understanding of the word righteousness. This is what I call the social view of the word righteous, um, which defines righteous as being in right relationship with another person or with God. Um, so there's a covenantal component to righteousness. And what I mean by that is that righteousness um, doesn't just mean you're a good person. It means you're a good person in relationship with someone else. Um, so there's this social component. Like, I can't just be a good person because I do good things. I can't be righteous because I do good things. I'm a good person because I do good things that someone else told me to do, if that makes any sense. Um, and that component, being righteous in the eyes of another person, um, is generally what gets emphasized a lot um, because of the kind of covenantal nature of the Old Testament and Deuteronomy in particular. Um, a lot of the components of this 
um, definitions see righteousness not so much as I am an evil person inwardly and I have this um, sinful nature within me, but instead uh, see themselves as people that um, have broken the covenant of God um, and that needs to be rectified, that needs to be made right, essentially. And so um, it's a bit of a shift in some ways to say righteousness isn't as much concerned with me or I or anthropology, as we talked about last week, but righteousness is more concerned with a relationship between um, God and us or a relationship between humans and other humans. Um, So to really make this kind of crystal clear, I'll give two kind of examples here. The first few will say that righteousness is about um, the story of humans um, being a very sinful people um, and unable to ever achieve a moral standing that God is okay with. And so in a courtroom situation, for instance, God will look at a human being and find that they have not lived um, uh, according to uh, the laws of his covenant and uh, that they've never been able to live up according to the laws of the covenant and their inability to live up to his laws is what makes them unrighteous. Um, And that needs to be fixed. And that is the uh, thing that um, they need to be declared righteous, essentially. Um, That's view one. View two would say that the reason um, Israel and humans are unrighteous is not because of an innate sense of um, apostasy in human beings, but is because they have broken the law of God and broken the law with each other. And that the sins of um, uh, the social dynamic of um, breaking relationship with God and not being faithful to God's covenant and the um, faith uh, not being faithful to each other is what has put them in the predicament that they are in. So um, it's again a little bit of a like a minor distinction when you think about it. Um, one says that um, righteousness is a, um, a theological term um, or an anthropological term. Um, and when I say anthropological, I just mean righteousness is something innate in a human being that they either are or not or are not right. Um, it, it's a quality to them that has no uh, relationship with what we do. It's just a part of ourselves that's very innate. It's 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 a metaphysical quality. Um, to human beings. The second view would say righteousness is not a metaphysical reality. Um, It is actually something very physical, something very much related to our actions and what we do in our life. And so um, over and against the first view that would say you're born unrighteous and you just have this innate quality to yourself that makes you unrighteous. The second view would say you're unrighteous because you break God's laws. You break God's covenant. Those are the two major views for righteousness. Um, The next one is the word law. Law also has gotten uh, a lot of uh, debates about what it means and how it functions. Um, The word in Hebrew is Torah, um, which doesn't just mean law, but can also mean instruction um, or teaching. And then um, in Greek, um, the word is nomos or nomus, sorry. Um, And the interesting thing about law 
at least with Paul, is that Paul oftentimes will use law in multiple different facets of that word and oftentimes interchangeably uses it um, in contexts that obviously have nothing to do with the Jewish law, um, like the law that we might say is um, the Old Testament law, um, and instead will refer to a law like we talked about in chapter one of the Gentiles. They have a law in and of themselves, and when you really kind of break that down, you find out he's talking about the conscience that's at work inside a human being that's telling them this is good and this is bad, and he calls that a law. Um, that becomes pretty com complicated when you have this kind of, um, uh, you have this one word to kind of define multiple different meanings, so to speak. Um, and in this case, it's not necessarily like righteousness where there's like kind of sort of a big debate about whether or not to choose one over the other. In this case, it's more of a debate about in which cases is he referring to the law of Moses? In which cases is he just referring to kind of like a general law that's a part of like Gentile consciousness? Um, and, in what, and in which cases is he referring to what we'll talk about here in this chapter today, the law of being a Christian and the law of Christ, as he mentions at the very end of this chapter? Um, he will use law in so many different ways um, that it can become very confusing. And so at the outset, I just want to kind of set up three that are prevalent right from the get-go, just from reading um, uh, these first couple chapters, and I will begin to add a few more as we work through this entire book. One of those is one we already talked about. Um, there is a law that the Gentiles have in and of themselves. We saw this in chapter one. Um, that um, kind of incites in them whether or not a thing is good or not good. Um, and that law actually is, he puts on par with the law of the Old Testament, um, that they have in themselves a law that kind of works through their life to define both good and evil. Um, and that law even could be used to criticize a Jew that's not following the Jewish law um, even. So um, he does see that kind of Gentile law of consciousness. And then, of course, we have the Old Testament law. There's a huge big debate about whether or not he refers to the whole Old Testament law or specific laws like circumcision, um, Sabbath keeping, and um, Jewish festivals. Um, is he talking about very specific laws or is he just talking about the whole thing? Um, a lot of people kind of will go down on one side of the fence or the other. I find those arguments to be a little pointless um, because a lot of the time it seems Paul is talking in generalizations, especially in these first couple chapters, and not specifically getting into the weeds of circumcision or um, Sabbath keeping or food laws or things of that nature just yet. So it seems kind of weird if law for Paul meant only like um, specific things like that. Um, again, um, that's, that's something you can research on your own time if you're so interested in, but yeah, it definitely takes, it has a part to play in the overarching understanding of these chapters is how you see him using the Jewish law and what specifically he even means by that. Um, like I said, I take a more generalized view that he's just talking about the entire Old Testament law. Um, even so far as to say, like when I think when he's talking about the law, I think he's talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's what they would call the Old Testament law, Torah. Um, and I think he's referring to all of that um, story as the law. Um, so 
again, those are different views. You can go so far as some people might say that like Leviticus through Deuteronomy is the law. Um, and yeah, the story sections of Genesis and Exodus at the beginning are not necessarily uh, part of what he's talking about. But again, there's uh, so many different commentaries that will have different opinions on that. Um, and it doesn't look like there's like one big consensus to that. What I will say is that there used to be an older way to understand law in which um, they broke it down more into a moral law and a works-based law. Um, so there was the moral law they called was the Gentile law that I was talking about in chapter one. Um, that law of the consciousness um, they would call a moral law and that your morals, you know, the natural law, sometimes it's called by people like C.S. Lewis, for instance, um, this law that just kind of exists in the world, um, almost independent to the Bible and what the Bible claims. And that law is something that nobody, that everybody is aware of, no matter if they're a Jew or a Gentile. Um, that category um, is largely... Um, uh, outdated for most commentaries. Most commentaries on the book of Romans nowadays, if you read any commentary, um, will openly say Paul did not have a category in his mind about, um, there being this natural law that just exists as this like finite thing that anybody can tap into, um, and that, uh, people are just ignoring it. Um, Paul instead, according to Romans one, seems to have a very, um, personal, uh, view of, the law for the Gentiles, which is that each person, each Gentile inwardly has a conscience that dictates what is true and what is not true. And it's not this um, almost Greek idealism that uh, or Platonic view of this moral thing that just has always existed um, and that humans are tapping into um, when they decide what is good or evil. It is something within a human being that can decide whether or not something is good or not good. Um, again, those are two different views you can take on even the moral law and how, how it, how it works out. So you have the debates about what the Jewish law means, and then you have the debates about um, what the moral slash, um, conscience law of Romans 1 are. And then finally, um, as I as we'll talk about at the very end of this, um, there is the law of Christ or, or um, the law of faith. Um, that law, uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out, like, how does that even work? Because um, having a law that involves faith seems to be sometimes contradictory to Paul saying that, you know, Christianity isn't about works. And um, there's sometimes a big kerfuffle about um, how the law of faith in Christ even could be called a law and why would Paul call it a law? Um, we'll talk about that later on. Um, like I said, I don't think I need to get into that one. There's thankfully not really a lot of like uh, different and different like def definitions for that one. Pretty much everybody accepts that the definition of that does mean that Paul sees having faith in Jesus in some way as a overarching law for life, um, the law of life, so to speak. Um, and he sees that as like a, a rule of thumb, I guess would be a shorthand way to say a law um, in that in that kind of category. And so not many people kind of debate that one necessarily. They mainly just debate how it works, not necessarily the definition attached to it. So those are all the three for law. Like I said, this is, I'm trying to make this short y'all, but sometimes, man, uh, there are people that debate all over the place. Um, the last one I want to talk about is the word 
justify, which in Greek is the word dikaios. Um, this one also has been the source of a lot of debate, primarily because of a big distinction, again, going back to the distinction between the word righteous. Um, for the base definition of dikaios really just means to make righteous. <laughs> and so it kind of depends on how you translate and interpret the word righteous, how you interpret the word justify. Um, and a lot of people, sorry, uh, by the way, uh, most of the time translations will translate the word dikaios as justify. And again, justify plays a huge role in a lot of Christian theology because justify can mean um, it gets tangled up in the word justification, which has like a whole history of interpretation and theology, how justification works and how it's laid out. Um, and so the overarching kind of debate that's going on at the moment is that um, there are really two central views to justify, which is that, um, yeah, I mean, there, you could you could get into even more, um, and I'm not sure I want to at this 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 perspective. But there's main there's two main ones that I'll talk about. One for the definition, at least one view sees justify as from that old righteous perspective in which to justify someone means to um, declare them morally um, right. Um, and to declare their sin to be um, cleansed, essentially. So, um, and uh, for for the most part, uh, this is the old way that you probably grew up in church hearing the word justify used, is if I justify someone, I'm telling a person that still has sin in their life that they are cleansed from that sin. Even if they still have sin in their life, I'm telling them that they are cleansed and that I don't hold it against them and that that sin that's in their life currently um, is not going to affect my relationship with them. Right. That would be the first view. The second view would be to say that justify is saying that the relationship between me and you is now whole again, um, that um, the sin that you are doing in my life that has hurt me deeply, um, I am now um, justifying you, meaning that we are good. It's basically the equivalent of when you have a big argument with someone and eventually the person just says, don't worry about it. We're good. That is, in effect, what the second view would say is justifying a person is saying we are good. Right. Um, the uh, uh, effects of whatever you've done to me no longer matter to me. So you see how that relates to how I was defining righteousness earlier. First one says that there's this innate part of a human being that needs to get fixed and then uh, that innate nature of a human being that gets fixed is um, made right by this word dikaios declaring that person to be made righteous they are now um, uh, declared clean basically um, that would be the first view the second view would be that um, because righteous means we're no we're in a relationship in which you've done a lot of crap to me. You've done a lot of bad things to me and I am really hurt by that. And, um, we are no longer in a functioning relationship with one another. So you are not righteous because you're the one doing all of these horrible things in, in the relationship with me. Um, because of that, 
um, we need to figure out something to work that out. And if we do figure out something to work that out, then I can declare you righteous from that point forward because our relationship has been fixed and you are back in right relationship with me. Does that make sense? Hope it does. Um, that's part of like uh, really parsing out these tombs. It is worthy to note too that uh, just even my own personal life, I used to be on an either or spectrum, especially with righteousness and justify. I'm more these days kind of in a both and kind of place where I see, I see Paul sometimes going in the direction of one of the meanings of those words and sometimes going in the direction of the meaning of the other meanings of this word. And so, um, part of what I'm doing with this whole Romans series in general is kind of presenting both, um, as best as I can and letting you kind of decide how your old way of thinking about Romans kind of maps onto this newer way of thinking about it um, and seeing where the spirit leads in that and hopefully being more of a guide than anything. Um, There are times, you know, I was listening back to the first two episodes that I recorded and I do sense even in me, there are times where I just have a very certain view on something that kind of comes through in those first two episodes. And uh, that part of it, I will say, is just um, more uh, a belief within myself about interpreting specific passages. Um, But as far as like this overarching kind of framework for viewing Romans as a whole, um, I'm far more loose on um, in terms of how you were to even analyze some of these terms. Um, and so it's definitely something to be aware of. It's something to meditate on. And hopefully I did a good job explaining those three terms. Those are the terms we're going to talk about today, mostly. Um, I kind of talked about faith um, a little bit in the last um, episode, um, actually both both episodes. Um, a, a short recap of faith is... Um, The old way of viewing faith would say faith and the word belief are synonymous with one another, that faith is really just a shorthand way of saying believe. Um, A more updated viewpoint on faith would say that faith requires some action for it to be actual. Um, So if you don't um, put some physical action into the whole discussion, if you don't do something, then you have no... um, faith. Um, and so you have to put your trust, for instance, in God, like Abraham put his trust in God when he sacrificed Isaac or almost sacrificed Isaac on the burning altar for it to be considered faith. And if you don't have some action component like that, um, then you can't really call it faith. Um, the classic example of this is, um, someone says, uh, uh, they have faith that the chair will hold them up. Um, but if they never sit in the chair, they don't actually have faith. That would be the second view. Um, the first view would say, no, you can have faith that chair will hold you up without actually having to sit in it. Um, and those two views um, are very much, again, kind of goes back to Martin Luther. I would say Martin Luther was very much in the first camp, and uh, recent recent studies are moving more away from that. So, again, that's that's just how... Um, how things have kind of panned out, um, but it is worthy of kind of bringing up all of those different terminology um, 
discussions for the purpose of enlightening you and for helping you kind of navigate a lot of the ongoing questions that uh, are still at the center of a lot of Christian debates. It is noteworthy that as far as like you'll notice with all of the newer definitions of um, all of these terms, the newer definitions are incorporating some kind of um, physical action into theology. And so ethics isn't just a separate category from theology. Belief is not just a separate category from action. The two are in this big wobbly yarn ball that kind of overlap. Eh, That's even a bad analogy. the, The two are more in a tapestry where the two strands continue to over, um, lay one another and pulling on one thread of that tapestry unravels either or if that makes any sense. So hopefully that is a good kind of pre pre kind of um, amble to this chapter in particular where all of these terms kind of come up. Um, And so it might be helpful for that in general. Another thing to point out uh, past just the definitions of terms is also just to kind of give us a small little recap to the last two episodes. Um, if you remember, we focused specifically in the first chapter on Paul's view of how sin affected both pagans specifically and how he saw the gospel affecting um, the life of the people in Rome. Those were the two primary points that he focuses in on is what did the gospel do and how did it affect the people in Rome, what he sees the gospel to be, and then how up until that point, the pagan uh, culture um, had fallen very far off the bandwagon when it came to understanding God and understanding who he was and what he was asking of his creation um, and how even um, uh, backwards the people in these pagan cultures had um, become because of their idolatry and how that idolatry had led even to uh, a reordering of creation where um, animals are now higher than humans and they're now worshiping animals as gods and all of this kind of stuff. And so um, uh, in many ways uh, he sees this kind of um, culture of paganism as a, Um, almost as like a self-destructive entity that's just destroying itself um, because it has no um, understanding of what God actually wants of it. But then in chapter two, like we talked about last week, he then goes on to say that Jews are doing the exact same thing, even though they had the law um, and that they became a self-destructive force just because of the fact, by the very fact that, um, even though they had the law, they continued to disobey it. They, they continued to go their own way. And uh, it wasn't as if the law made them any more holy than these pagan nations that just went their own way. And his point, trying to sum up both, both of the chapters in one, is that like whether or not you have the law or not have the law, um, uh, you still end up in the same place, um, basically, and you will still end up in this judgment. And he makes several critiques of how people should not um, judge, essentially. So uh, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, whether you find yourself um, in a, a 
like a situation in which you're uh, a Jew and you're looking at all these pagan na nations doing all of this, these crazy things like homosexuality and all this kind of stuff. Um, you have no right to judge that because you're a Jew and your own history has no, um, <laughs> your, your own history does not allow you to kind of sit on a high horse and judge for the things that you see the rest of the world doing because, uh, yeah, you've offended God also. Um, and in quite, quite some intense ways. And so all of that is kind of the first two chapters and chapter three now opens with a, a, the first objection that he expects to hear from a, um, Jewish person. Um, and maybe even a Gentile person that might have a very smart, more philosophical way of viewing things. Um, but primarily, I think he's answering some Jewish objections here, some objections to what he said. Um, because like I said, Romans 2 is a very controversial um, thing for a Jew to say, um, for a Jew to get on and uh, say that like having the Jewish law and having Genesis through Deuteronomy um is not going to make you more holy of a person. Uh, like that's a very, very um, harsh thing to say. Um, and is something that a Jew would have a hard time grasping with, especially with their rich history of books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where it says that God specifically chose the Jewish people to be a light to the Gentiles. Like they have this holy station, this holy vocation where they're supposed to be this people group that um, do have um, this special relationship with God. And so for Paul to then come on and say that this book that you have, this law code that you have, does not make you more holy, um, and the things that you're doing, like following Sabbath, all of these different uh, laws within that book are not actually making you any more justified than, um, like, than someone like a Greek, um, that is a very hard thing for them to hear. And that is where we kind of pick up in chapter three. So let's go ahead and read that chapter and then we'll kind of dive into it verse by verse. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we then conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike and are all under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, 
not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God and the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. All right, so let's just go ahead and dive straight into this. So he starts out with verse one saying, what advantage then is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? This is an interesting chapter because he does a lot of rhetorical kind of questions that he's assuming that someone hearing his words might ask back to him, um, which can be pretty difficult if you're just like listening to this entire like chapter. Um, I tried to do my best in the recording of that chapter to kind of give the certain intonations of like someone asking a question and then him responding. But sometimes that's just, I'm no actor. Um, so hopefully that got through, but um, we'll kind of walk through all of these different questions that he kind of foresees people making and asking um, and then him responding to. So yeah, um, he, uh, he assumes they're going to ask like, you know, given all that we talked about before, why then would it be any value or advantage for a Jew to be a Jew? Like, why would God choose a people and then kind of turn around with Jesus and make it all about all people? Um, and like, what does that mean for the Jewish story in which Jews were supposed to be the special people that um, have this special relationship with God? Like, how does that all work out if the Torah doesn't really matter anymore? Um, his, his response to that is that actually there is a lot to be valued in there being a Jew. Like there is some things, and this is something that I wish a lot of Gentiles today would realize that the, is that there still is an advantage to being a Jew. Like, cause Paul said it right there. Um, this is like post-resurrection Jesus here. Like there's a lot of advantage to being a Jew. Um, and 
He doesn't just say little, like he says much in every way. So, you know, just keeping that at the front of the radar. Um, He says much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So one of the first things he's saying is they were the people that got to um, uh, have and uh, divulge the truth of God through scripture, like uh, the whole Old Testament. Uh, it's important to remember, too, by the way, that they did not have the New Testament by this period. So like the entire Bible to them, when they talk about God's words and the words of God is the Old Testament. And um, if you think about who was given the job of making sure that that whole story was um, written down faithfully, um, was able to be taught and understood. Um, That is the Jewish people that um, were the people um, designated by God to be able to do that. And so his first point is very, very um, kind of bluntly obvious is like uh, a Jew got to have the one source of truth in the entire universe, you know, like they got to be... um, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say the one source of truth in the entire universe because Jesus ended up becoming the source of truth and the Holy Spirit will later come on. But they got to have one of the most primary ways of uh, God's revealing of himself, as um, Hebrews will say. And uh, that is like something to be um, really proud about as a Jew. Like if you're a Jew, you get to have this text that you really do believe comes from the God of the universe, which is a high honor. Right. And so um that's his first, um, that's his first like, uh, point of like, this is why I think that Jews are awesome, you know? And I think that's great. Like, I, I think that that's something that we can still take today. Um, the way that a Jew even today will interact with their Hebrew texts and their synagogues and things of that nature is the, there's this huge reverence to it that I wish, <laughs> I honestly wish that, um, we had in our context today, you would be surprised how many people I interact with that find the Bible to be confusing and, uh, a book that, um, uh, is actually difficult and hard to read and something that they would rather not open on a given day than open. And, uh, you know, like it's a stark contrast to even how the Jews, even in our own culture today, treat the Bible. And, and I'm uh, here talking about Orthodox Jews, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it is, it is an interesting, interesting thing to behold, I guess I would say. Verse three, he then asks a second question, which is, what if some of them were unfaithful? He's talking about Jews here. So what So what if some of the Jews were unfaithful, even though they got God's word? Um, so what if they were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Here he's basically saying like, he he's foreseeing like, okay, yeah, sure. A Jew got the words of God, um, but uh, that they were, they didn't follow through. Like he was saying in chapter two, they didn't follow through with what they were supposed to do. And they didn't become a light to the Gentiles. Instead, they became worse. Um, and so like someone could like raise the objection, like, well, why is there any value in being a Jew if like they were so unfaithful? Um, and Paul's point here is like, just because they were unfaithful doesn't mean that God wasn't faithful to them doesn't mean that God's plan failed, essentially. Um, Just because the Jews um, are unfaithful, does that nullify the fact that God is who he is? No. Um, He says, let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written. And here he quotes from Psalm 51, which if you don't know what Psalm 51 
the context of that is actually David writing about Bathsheba and his sin with Bathsheba and asking God's forgiveness for that whole story. Um, and one of the verses in that, he says, um, I was wrong and uh, like I need to be a, like I need to confess my sins to you. Um, but specifically, he says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. So he basically says that, like, I've sinned against you so that you are then uh, justified. You are then shown to be in the right. Um and uh, it's kind of David sort of peeling back the layers a little bit of his sin, looking at why God allowed that to happen in his life, looking at the suffering that he caused, and really seeing into kind of a viewpoint of how it looks from God's perspective in which um, it's David's inability to follow after God that makes God look all the more greater and the more glorious, which is a hard point. Like this is a very interesting point. Um, this is very much a, a, a point from the negative. <laughs> um, it's, it's a point at which uh, <laughs> I think some people are still uncomfortable with today uh, in general. And as a matter of fact, you can tell that even Paul thinks some people are going to be uncomfortable with it um, because he spends like pretty much the rest of this whole section kind of, working out why it's okay for this to be true, um, why it's okay for our sin to bring about God's glorification and God to be shown to be faithful. Um, and I do want to kind of unpack this, right? Like, it is very true that when someone is doing evil, um, their evil is uh, uh, makes any kind of goodness that is near them or around them look all the more brighter. Like that's just a part of human ability to see, right? Is when, when, uh, when the contrasts happen in life, um, they make both things look more out in focus, if that makes sense. Right. Um, I think about this even like with latte art, um, I'm a barista in my spare time. And um, one of the interesting things about latte art is you're trying to get this white milk foam to show up a little design in the center of a latte, which is just coffee and milk. And the darker the um, coffee is when you pour the milk foam, the more the center image of whatever design you're doing pops, right? Like the whiter that image is, um, the whiter that coffee looks, the less it pops. And so um, there's this big kind of like um, thought that like you don't want to do latte art in like 12 ounce or 14 ounce cups because if you do, there's just two ounces of coffee and then f like 10 ounces of milk. And so it just makes it a really white-ish color that you then do your design in. Whereas if you were to do it in like... Um, uh, like a four ounce or a six ounce cup, right? You only have two ounces of coffee and then four ounces of milk. Um, it's harder to do because you have less space to do the design you're trying to do, um, but it gives it a better contrast, right? And that's the whole point is what he's getting at here is David looks back at his sin with Bathsheba and realizes that his sin is actually what shows how um, right God is and how faithful God is to him specifically, even though he's such a sinner, right? Like it's through his own sin that you get to see how 
merciful God is. You get to see how faithful he is to David, even in spite of that, right? That's his whole point. So then Paul in verse five, then kind of works through like what that means for the Jews and what it means for the Jewish people. They have the same thing that David had, where they were super unfaithful to God. And yet that shows how faithful God has been to them to take care of them throughout their entire history. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Again, he's asking a rhetorical question here that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. So he's assuming that someone, you know, finding and listening to this truth and understanding this truth would then be really critical of God, because how could God judge the Jewish people if the very, Jewish people's sins is what makes God look so good, right? It's the very thing that makes um, the whole story so beautiful. Um, How can he be judging of that kind of sin then? Um, And he uh, quickly kind of, you'll notice in some translations, they put this in parentheses. He quickly says that like, this is not an argument that like I find uh, a a good argument. I find it to be a human argument is what he says. Um, This is not from the spirit. is basically what he's getting at there. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world, right? Like his basic point is, if that's true, then like no sin could ever be judged. Um, Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, well, let me back up there. So that's in quotations. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner, right? That's the question. So again, kind of reiterating the same question he asked earlier. Um, Then he responds by saying, well, you should be asking a different question. And this is the question you should be asking. Why not say, as some slatterously claim, let us do evil that may good may result. Basically saying that like, the question you really should be asking if you're asking that question is like, why not let's just sin and let good result as a result of it, which is something he'll actually come back to in chapter six of the book of Romans. And he's pointing out just how ridiculous the question is on the surface. Like if you, or not even on the surface, but when you really think about it is really at the heart of that question is like, well, a question, it's an attempt to be able to do evil without having judgment labeled on you and trying to judge God for having any judgment. And it's, it's, it's trying to get away with doing evil is really how Paul sees it. Um, and so, He's like, their judgment is just because they're trying to get away with evil, essentially, if you're already trying to ask that kind of question. Um, and so he really puts it back on their toes. It's like, if you're even a person that's thinking about that question, you're already trying to justify to yourself how you can get away with evil. And that is not okay. Um, because that's putting you in a mindset in which um, you're far from God. And so he kind of nips that in the bud before then he goes on. So after addressing all of those kind of objections that he assumes people are going to have, he then, in verse 9, decides to kind of wrap all of this up with a neat bow. Um, He says, what shall we then conclude? Do we have any advantage? Again, talking about Jews. He talked about advantage earlier. Do we Jews have any advantage? Now, here's what's interesting. (laughs) He said at the front, Jews have an advantage. And then he says at the bottom, not at all. (laughs) Um, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike (laughs) under the power of sin. So is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth there, right? Because he says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? And then in verse nine, he says, what then shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? 
No, no. What he's saying, he's talking about the fact in the first part, he's talking about how Jews do have an advantage in their history, like as all the way up to this present time, their advantage in history has been that they have had the words of God um, and that that has allowed them to be able to demonstrate that God is a good God, um, that God is a faithful God in spite of their unfaithfulness, right? But when he comes to conclusions, when he thinks about all of it over the whole argument that he's laid out, when he looks at it from like the, the sinking boat that everybody's in, then he asks the question, do, do we have any advantage, right? Do the Jews have any advantage with the sinking ship that everybody is in? Right. So the first question, do we have any advantage as a Jew, like like ethnically? Do we have any ethnic like elective advantage? Right. And then the second question is, do we have any advantage in concerns with our relationship with God there? He says no. So maybe that helps to kind of understand. He's asking two different questions there. They just are very shorthand. And because Paul writes in shorthand, sometimes he gets misunderstood. So, yep, Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat. Right. Um, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Uh, that's the boat we're all in. We're all under this power of sin. Uh, when it comes to um, pagans, um, the sin has corrupted their minds, made them do things that they normally wouldn't do. Um, and when it comes to Jews, the sin has made them arrogant, has made them super hypocritical. Uh, super judgmental of the Gentiles and has made them a type of people that um, thinks that they're doing it all right when really they're very far away from God, right? So everybody's under the power of sin. And then he goes on to write this long, and this isn't even him writing. Um, This is sometimes what a lot of the apostles will do when they really want to drive home a point. They will put several different passages of the Old Testament scriptures linked to one another in this long kind of poetry section to kind of really drive home what he's getting at. And he starts this with, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. That is pulled um, from, uh, let's see here, Psalm 14 and also Psalm 53. Um, It's a a psalm that's actually um, repeated twice in the um, whole Psalter. And uh, both psalms are almost identical. And they do, it's this person, uh, this writer of the Psalms that looks out over, and this is very important, um, very important. Most people use this as a indication that all humanity is falling away um, here. And I do think there's some inclinations of that with what Paul's doing, but it's not in Psalm 14. In Psalm 14 and 53, he's looking out specifically over the people of Israel in his own community and seeing all the people in his own community and saying there's no one righteous, not even one, specifically talking about Jews, basically, and seeing that there's no righteous Jew among any of the people as he's writing writing the psalm, right? Um, so you can kind of see the power of using that specific psalm when he's trying to show that both Jews and Gentiles are kind of in the same Um, situation under the power of sin, right? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. All that's pulled from that song, psalm. Then he uh, pulls from a new psalm. This psalm is Psalm 5. And Psalm 5 uh, starts with um, 
a psalmist that is groaning. Um, Give me ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. And what you find out through the psalm is that he's been praying, he's been trying to listen to God's voice, that he's trying to do everything um, for God, and uh, that he is overwhelmed by the fact that there are wicked people in the land, that he feels this emotional sense of despair and depression even for people that are boastful and wicked and are getting away with all of these different things, um, while he Um, seems to be suffering and groaning in some way. And so um, he says in verse 9 about these people, for there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. And then in verse 10 he says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So it's this concept in which this psalmist is just sees the evil of these people and he's calling God for justice, um, which again kind of goes through with Paul's point about the fact that everybody deserves that. Everybody deserves a psalmist like this to um, both Jews and Gentiles deserve someone um, saying this about them. Um, he then quotes from another psalm, Psalm 143, um, that also is talking about uh, a psalmist calling out for deliverance from evil men. Um, and he talks about um, the fact that he's being pursued by them, um, violent men um, who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars occasion- continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps, right? Um, so he's condemning these evil men for being filled with um, uh, bitterness and uh, their words being nothing but harmful words. Um, he talks, then goes to a, a psalm in chapter 10, and this is verse 7. His mouth is fulled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Um, again, it's someone talking about a wicked person, um, the psalmist talking about wicked people. Um, again, then he goes to a different Psalm. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace. They do not know that is pulled actually from Isaiah. Um, in Isaiah, this is a, um, section in chapter 59 of the book of Isaiah. Um, specifically he's talking about how the Lord is going to bring some justice on the entire world, um, on the people that have sinned. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. He's talking specifically about the Israelites here, um, saying, yeah, like, look, like the Lord is not not able to save you like the Lord can save you. But at the same time, your iniquities have caused this huge separation. Um, your hands are defiled with blood. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. That all sounds like what we just read, right? In Romans three, no one uh, enters suit justly and no one goes to law. Honestly, um, they hatch adder's eggs. That also t- sounds a lot like Romans three. Honestly, Isaiah 59 and Romans three, I bet he was using Isaiah 59 as kind of kind of his like template as he like 
used a lot of these psalms and things because it really kind of sums up a lot of what he's getting at. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace, right? Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. That's the line that's used. Um, yeah, like all of that is like almost like a template for what he's talking about here. There is no fear of, of God before their eyes is the last line he uses, and that's pulled from Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Again, all talking about either Jews or just general wicked people in general, right? Like it's either talking about God's relationship with the Jewish people and how they're not living up to what God wants them to live up. That'd be Isaiah 59. And also the very first one he mentions, which is um, Isaiah uh, or Psalm 51, uh, sorry, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Um, those two are specifically Jewish condemnations. And then the rest are just, um, pulling Psalms that are specifically focused on wicked people in general and how awful they are. Um, and he just builds this beautiful, um, poetry piece from all of these different sections of the, his Bible to show that like no one is righteous. (laughs) Everybody has some kind of, uh, fault and it's not, he's not, again, I, I really believe the, point of this is not all humans everywhere are evil. His point here is to say both Jews and Gentiles alike are evil. And that does mean all humans are evil. You just got to add that line into the whole statement before you get to the second statement. I think everybody kind of tries to focus in on just, oh yeah, he's just saying that humans are evil and then moves on kind of simple thing. No, he's saying a lot more than that. He's saying that like Jewish people the people that should that have the law of God are just as much in the same situation as Gentiles, right? And that's a, that's his big point here, and it's something that I think gets missed a lot when we talk about these verses, especially if you're going through the Romans Road, because one of these verses gets used in the Romans Road. Now, in verse 19, he says, "Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law." So here, he's probably talking about the. Um, Jewish law. Again, there's a lot of debate about when we talked about law and how law can mean different things for Paul. But I think here he's talking about the Jewish law, especially with the context above it, where it seems like he's pretty heavy handed against Jews in this whole section. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and that the whole world held accountable to God. I think here what he's basically saying is like, look, if we go back through all these texts, the Jewish people don't have a good history with God. They're just as indicted as the Gentiles are, and they make everyone silent, right? The Jews can't bring up any objections any more than the Gentiles can. Everybody knows that they are falling short of the glory of God. Basically, they all are in the same circumstance where they're stuck under the power of sin. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. And that's his basic point of the whole thing is that just because you are a Jew and you have the law does not mean that the law will be able to save you even though parts of the law promise that the Israelites will be a light to the Gentiles. That's his big point. Um, Instead, what it's going to do is it's going to make you aware of just how unfaithful you've been to God and how faithful God has been to you. That has been the story of the Jewish people so far, is that they've never been able to be faithful. God is the one that's uh, been faithful, right? So the the big question is, how is he going to conclude everything? 
after concluding his that that whole section right there is really kind of summing up chapters one and two. Um, now in verse 21, he's then going to kind of jump into his next big point about like what Jesus means and what the gospel means for that whole situation. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So he says, yes, it's apart from the law, but it's also something that the law and the prophets like showed was going to happen. Um, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. How many times has he said that? Like we should probably like start a counter for how many times he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. I really, really believe that is the like main meat of this whole section. It's not about whether or not righteousness and justification is like a big thing or not. It's he's focused specifically on the fact that sin applies both to a Jew and to a Gentile. doesn't matter. The law won't save you. Um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that, uh, that came by Christ Jesus. So his point is everybody's in the same power of sin boat, and then everybody gets saved out of that boat by the same power of Jesus Christ makes sense, right? Um, God presented Christ as a sacrifice for atonement through the shedding of his blood. Um, that is calling a lot of echoes in Leviticus. Um, specifically, this is again, where I think he's kind of melding the idea of it's apart from the law, but at the same time, the law testified to it. And so it's a healthy thing to think about the old Testament sacrificial system and atonement in general, especially in Leviticus 16. And to think about how that is a testimony to what Jesus will eventually do. Um, and it's not using the same thing. It's just pointing forward to what Jesus will eventually do. Um, it's interesting, though, that the atonement in that passage is very um, different than the atonement of Jesus. Um, a lot of people try and like meld those two onto one another. Um, they don't. Um, in particular, in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, the sins of the person uh, of all the people are not put on a lamb that's killed. The sins of the people are put on a lamb that's actually released out into the wild and never seen again. And the lamb that's killed, um, its blood is used to cleanse the people. But that's about it. Um, it's not... Um, uh, it's not the one that the sins are put over. And so there is some interesting kind of like distancing between sin with the lamb that's killed and in the Levitical law code, which, you know, you could debate back and forth how that works out with Jesus. That gets into atonement theory, all that. I'm not really trying to get into that. I'm just telling you that like, it doesn't map on literally just directly from Leviticus. And I think that's kind of why uh, he says, it's just a testimony. It's not like an actual, like a lot of people will say it's like a type even. Um, and I'm not comfortable even with type sometimes because the word Paul uses a lot is testimony or a witness. It's, it's witnessing to a future event, not necessarily a mini version of that event. Does that make sense? There, there's a, there's a bit of a distinction there that I think, and you'll notice that there is the shedding of blood here, um, to be received by faith. And you'll notice that it's not just like the Old Testament where um, in the Old Testament, the lamb is killed, 
The blood is then sprinkled on the people and on everything and cleanses it. And then the sins are put on another animal that then wanders out into the wilderness. Instead, what the people have to do, instead of just getting the blood poured on them and they are now clean, is they actually have to have faith in God. Like the faith is an is a aspect to this whole atonement thing that is very different than the Levitical law code. There was no faith required in the Levitical atonement ceremony. Here, there is faith required. Um, the blood of Jesus is received by faith. That is um, kind of an adaption to the atonement of the Old Testament. Um, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, forbearance is just a fancy word of saying in his like knowing beforehand and in his willingness to um, be forgiving beforehand, right? Like um, it's sort of like I have forbearance if I'm willing to, if I know a person's going to do a bad thing, but like, I also know that that's going to teach them a lesson or I've got another plan that's like worked out. That's going to help fix that situation in my forbearance. I'll withhold from judging that person, let things play out the way they will forbear to have action um, or justice and let the sins happen the way they happen. And then I'll enact whatever plan I have. That's, that's what that meaning of that word means. So um, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness again, Righteousness, we talked about, can mean um, his ability to be faithful, his ability to be in right relationship with us, right? Uh, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So he's saying he could have like punished pretty much the whole world, I think, in this case. I don't think he's looking at all of just the Jew story or even just the Gentile story because this is kind of wrapping everything up, right? And he's talking about both Jews and Gentiles, especially in verse 22. He says there's no difference between the two of them. So I think his summation of this is like he could have poured out a lot of wrath on the world in general for the sins of the Gentiles and for the sins of the Jews um, that he did not pour out. And he did that to demonstrate his faithfulness to them to the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Basically saying, so he can be the one that's shown to be a really good God, a really merciful God, someone that is uh, firm to his covenant, that never backs down from what he promised to do, and at the same time is someone who is also shown to be the person that's going to save them, that, that is going to make them, the people, both Jews and Gentiles, make them also just make them the people that are back in right relationship with him right and so he's both simultaneously a god that's doing his part and beyond he's following through with everything he promised he would do and at the same time he's making it so that we both jews and gentiles can also be able to do our part both being just and being the one that justifies um which is just a really cool point he's saying that basically like once he's gotten through with all of the like hard work of saying like, there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Like we both have the same story at the end of the day. Um, or we have a different story, but the same outcome to different stories. Um, past that he's like, but the cool thing is God has decided to be both someone that is faithful to the Jews and their whole story, despite all of their problems. And at the same time, someone that's going to fix both Jews and Gentiles, right? He's been faithful to both sides of the coin and he's going to now be the person that fixes both Jews and Gentiles. That's a really powerful point. So then he didn't asks a few more rhetorical questions. Where then is boasting? Like how can a Jew boast or even a Gentile boast in anything that they do? You can't. It's excluded. 
because of what law um he's basically saying here that like a law um uh you could boast in a normal law you know um and that like uh if it was a law of works um you could boast in that but um that's something that i'll pick up in ephesians too but um there's actually this new law that god has made happen in the world um that has excluded the fact that you could boast in the old law and that law is the law of faith right the law that requires faith necessarily uh specifically for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law that's his law that's the one law that you have now which is that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law or is god the gods of the jews only and we'll talk about that in a second but i really want to like harp on that so this is where we get into the kind of confusing territory of now he has this third use of the word law where he's talking about a law that is true for both Jews and Gentiles, right? And, and again, I think he's using this because he's trying to get both groups to feel like they're a family and to feel like they have a unified law that's over both of them, right? Um, that one excludes boasting, right? That's his first point. You can't just boast because you're a Jew um, and this other person's not a Jew, right? You, you can't do that anymore. Like this new law gets rid of all that. And this new law is a law that just says that if a person has faith in God's action through Jesus Christ and his redemption through Jesus Christ, if that person has that, um, he's in the family, right? He's in the family. And that is what now makes you cohesive, both Jews and Gentiles, because you all were in the same mess. And now you're having faith that God gets you all out of that mess, right? Um, that's his point. And then, of course, he assumes another um, rhetorical question that might be asked of him. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Asking, do you believe in multiple gods or do you believe in one God? Uh, asking the Jews that specifically. Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Of course he is, right? Yes, the Gentiles too, since there is one God, right? He's saying, look, remember, there's only one God here, and he did create Gentiles just as much as he created um, y'all who will justify the circumcised by faith. He's talking about God here, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law, right? Um, so his final conclusion in this chapter is think about the fact that we only have one God that exists in this world. He's the creator of all of us. And because he's the creator of all of us, he will justify who he wants to justify. That's a theme that'll come up in Romans nine. And he justifies both people that are circumcised and those that are uncircumcised. And the reason he justifies both of them is because they both have the same faith. They both have this, they both are now accepting a new law for their life, which is the law that gives both Gentiles and Jews equal standing with each other and equal standing with God. Um, gives them right relationship or righteousness with God and right relationship with each other. That's his whole point. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Like, does the, does having this new law of faith nullify the old law? Um, no. Not at all. We uphold that law, too. That's the confusing part. And we'll talk about that next week, because sometimes it sounds like he's saying that, like, the old laws put away with and done with. Um, 
And then sometimes it doesn't sound like that. And this is where we have to get really into the nuanced view of Paul and how he sees the Old Testament law now. So do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. That's something he actually says. We don't nullify the Old Testament law. Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. And I will put a pause on all of this explanation. And we'll talk about that next week when we get into how Abraham um, is a continuation of the old law. Um, and how the old law is not nullified, but it is, um, uh, it is brought to its conclusion and finality. Um, that'll be something that we, that his whole Abraham example in chapter four is really cool to kind of break down. So let's kind of break down this episode in general, right? There's this new thing that's happened, this new thing with Jesus that's created a new law of faith, right? Um, the first beginning of this, he just spends a lot of time making sure the Jews kind of get the point that like they're in the same boat as the Gentiles. Once they've got that point that they're in the same boat as the Gentiles and that everyone is wicked, he then uh, starts to talk about this new law that came about through Jesus and how this law, this new law of faith is actually an old law um, that that's going a little bit ahead. But like this new law of faith um, is not necessarily antithetical to the old law. It's just replacing certain elements in it. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, essentially. So hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully that was easy to digest. I know this was a long episode, um, but I'm really, really excited to keep going through these episodes with you. And hopefully you can go have conversations with people about it. Um, hopefully this is useful for your own personal digging. Um, if you find things that are different than anything that was expressed here, awesome. Um, share those with me. I'd love to hear them. And I hope that you have a very blessed week and that God is with you.